It's your Friday Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. So happy to be back with you for the final show of the week. Hope you're having a great day out there today. Good stuff coming up here. Uh, Bobby Nightingale Jr. from the Star Tribune joins me here in a few minutes to talk Twins. Um, big series against Texas, then another big one against Cleveland. They're kind of halfway through this big stretch where we wanted to see if they could kind of maintain or expand their lead. They've done okay so far, I would say. They're kind of holding serve, missed a chance, though, to really put Cleveland away. And now Cleveland has added a bunch of players off of waivers from the Angels. Kind of an interesting development. But Bobby and I will get into a whole bunch of Twins things here in just a few minutes. A Vikings uh, contract extension of note to get to at the end of the show as well. But who are we kidding? What did I miss? It's got to be the Gophers football team. 13-10 win at the gun over Nebraska. A clutch field goal wins it. So many big plays along the way that gets them to the finish line of a uh, a 1-0 start to the season. I wanted to, the way I kind of wanted to talk about this game is in terms of narratives. And I was just kind of thinking about how, you know, in this industry, we, we call the you know, we call the report on a game a game story. Um, so you know it's not it's not just a game you know not just a game write up or a game roundup. It is a game story. There is a narrative that gets constructed about the game, about a game that happens, you know, about a lot of different things in this you know in in the sports media world. But we call the we call the main story off of a game the game story, and. So it just kind of got me thinking about how that, you know, that really is a narrative that we are constructing in the media. Those of us who are writing those, you know, writing those things up after a game ends, taking in everything that they, you know, that teams say, players say, post game, taking in all of what has happened, synthesizing a lot of it into, you know, small bits and pieces, discarding a whole bunch of it that really didn't matter. And really focusing in on a handful of the most important things. You know, that's, that's kind of what you're taught to do across the board in, in writing. You know, you don't zero in on the least important things. But it struck me, thinking about that Gophers win over Nebraska, how the narrative of that game, how the story of that game changed so dramatically in so many ways by one single play. And that was Daniel Jackson's unbelievable catch that uh, that gave them the game tying touchdown in the you know in the in the late in the fourth quarter that got them to 10 10 after they hadn't gotten a touchdown that entire game that catch I don't think I've ever seen a better catch I'm, I'm not uh, maybe I'm exaggerating because Justin Jefferson that catch in Buffalo last year <clears throat> maybe that tops it I don't know if I've seen a better Gophers football catch at least since I've been watching the way he was able to, you know, not in, not just the catch itself, but the moment. It's a fourth and ten play. It's a fourth and ten play. There's about two and a half minutes left. If he doesn't make that catch, the Gophers are they have one timeout left, I think, because they've just called timeout to draw up that play. They've got one timeout left. If he doesn't make that catch, at best, they're going to get the ball back down a touchdown with about a minute left and no timeouts. Like this is basically the ball game. He. You know, he takes the takes the pass from Ethan Calic Manis. It's in the you know that kind of the side of the end zone. It's a nice pass, but it's kind of drifting towards the sideline. You guys probably all see, all saw it. So I'm, I mean, I'm probably you know don't need to describe it so much. But just the way that Daniel Jackson was able to drag his 
kind of his lead foot, to keep his lead foot suspended so he could drag his back foot to get it inbounds just barely and come down with it, no questions asked, no bobble, called a touchdown in the end zone, which I think was important. I think they would have gotten it even on an overturn because they, they did the review and said it was a conf- – I think they called it confirmed. But what a, what a catch. So he makes that catch, clutch moment, clutch play. If he doesn't make that catch, think about if he doesn't make that catch. I mean, think about all that flowed from that catch. They get the extra point that ties the game. Nebraska gets the ball back. The, the Gophers intercept a pass, get the ball back around midfield with about a minute left, get down to you know the, the 29 or so, kick the game-winning field goal at the gun, win a game that they were losing a lot of that game, especially the second half, and it was close the whole way. I mean, they were more than a touchdown favorite going into this game for much of the week. Um, they lose this game. Think about the narrative just in terms of the scope of their season. They've got a tough schedule up ahead. Think if they start think if they start 0-1 at home with a loss where they were favored by more than a touchdown, already a Big Ten loss. You're already thinking about the Big Ten West race is going to be a massive uphill climb if they didn't win that game. So that's that's point one of how the narrative changed. Point two. They threw the ball 44 times in this game, 44 times. If they don't make that connection at the end, if they lose 10 to 3, let's say, they lose 10 to 3, don't score a touchdown, you know, only wind up with, you know, 200 and some yards of total offense. Let's say that, let's say that's how the game winds up. We are talking all today about how this new pass first offense <clears throat> didn't look good, how Ethan Calcmanis, um, you know, has got major, major growing pains, how the running game is, a disaster right now. Instead, the running game is an afterthought. The running game is, hey, they'll get better at it, even though it wasn't very good in the opener Thursday. Calic Manis is getting all sorts of praise for clutch throws, for clutch plays, for the room to grow, um, things like that. So the narrative, of, the narrative of their identity change would be completely different had they not won that game. And let's say the narrative for Nebraska would have been completely different too. We're talking about a Nebraska team that struggled so much under Scott Frost to win close games, to win close and late games. Uh, well, if they had held on, they they might be feeling different now. They might be feeling like their narrative was changing. Instead, it is an extension of that narrative. They are now 2-14 and 14 in one-score games since the start of the 2021 season. They are the anti-Kevin O'Connell Vikings. So just when, you, when I watch games sometimes, I can't help but be struck at how <clears throat> one play not only changed how we watched the game, but changed completely how the game would have been covered the next day. One toe drag by Daniel Jackson makes all the difference for the Gophers. And what a play. What an amazing game. A really, really intense game. I found myself really interested in watching it, especially in the second half. The defense was really good for us. Four turnovers. That defensive backfield is going to be really good all season. It looks like they've got some pass rush this this year as well. So if the offense can catch up to the defense, if the pass game can catch up to where they want it to be, I see some good things happening for this team potentially. Now, <clears throat> again, I wouldn't be thinking that. I wouldn't be saying those things right now. I would be saying, hey, it was a good defensive effort wasted if they had lost 10-3. to I'd be saying, where do they go from here? Is this really the quarterback? Is this really the strategy for them? They would have to be patient in the face of that. Instead, they they now have the, the ability to teach off of a win instead of a loss. And we are sitting here talking about one of the more stirring comebacks and one of the greatest plays that I've seen instead of a loss that was humbling. So 
Think about that sometimes in the context of the moment of the narrative. I'm doing it all the time. That's just kind of how I'm wired. But from that game in particular, that one play, one spectacular moment where he's able to keep his foot in just barely fractions of an inch, split seconds. That's all it takes to completely change how we think about a game and a season to some degree. MGM Wine and Spirits is the choice for savings, service, and a great selection of spirits, premixed cocktails, wines, and of course, ice-cold beers and hard seltzers. With over 30 locations throughout the Twin Cities and beyond, there's an MGM near you. Head to MGMWineAndSpirits.com to find a convenient location in your area. Get social. Follow MGM on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest news and trends. Make great moments with MGM Wine and Spirits, your locally owned and operated choice for over 50 years. Save time, save money. Shop MGM. I'm glad to have Bobby Nightingale back on Daily Delivery. Um, Covers the Twins, of course. Joined our excellent Twins coverage team earlier this year. It's but Bobby, it's been an interesting season. I think like the first two or three times we talked, this team was kind of in the same mode. They couldn't hit. The pitching was great. They couldn't really get much traction, um, you know, in the division. And now things are. I think things have changed. They've transformed a bit in the last you know month, month or two. With the hitting's gotten better, you've got some some injury intrigue. The pitching has been a little bit more up and down with some interesting moves there. Is that your takeaway too? That all of a sudden this team um, there's there's way more way more different storylines now than they were maybe at the like the beginning of July. Yeah, I feel like when I started in maybe the first month of that, it was always it always felt like the games were kind of the same where they pitched really well and it was whether they scored three runs they'd win, if they didn't score three runs they lost. Um, now, now I feel like it's more diverse. I mean, they're still they're still pitching pretty well. The bullpens had some recent issues, but I, I feel like that's kind of a season for every bullpen. You're going to have your your two three week flare ups um, if you're a decent team. Maybe a little bit longer if you're not a decent team. Um, and, but the offense has turned around. I mean, you look at how the rookies have all contributed. Royce Lewis, uh, Edward Julian, Matt Walters finally up uh, full time. I mean, I. You, there's a lot of reasons why the offense has improved, but I think starting with those three is a huge one. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest change is just the rookies came in, they've contributed, and now you're getting some guys from the injured list back, and they're just fitting the like Jorge Polanco, they're fitting those guys in, and they're playing well too. I had a chance to not like officially win the AL Central over the last few days, but especially Wednesday when they had that late lead. There's a, ends up being essentially a two-game swing when they can't hold on to it with you know the Duran wild pitch and then the bad 10th inning sequence. They lose 5-2. Would have been a seven-game lead. Now it's five. It still feels good relative to... I mean, we forget this team was a half game back at the All-Star break, so they've definitely like reestablished command of the AL Central lead. That said, how, how do you think they've felt coming off that? Like Cleveland's not all the way gone. They, they kind of gave him some hope there that, that maybe they... They didn't want them to have. Yeah, I think it was one of those, like Sonny Gray summed it up after the game, just saying we let one get away. Obviously, it would have been nice to have a five-game lead with 28 to go. You're still in a commanding position. Um, I think there's still some anxiety from Twins fans from last year, just knowing how the team played in September, that that's in the back of their minds and you know, thinking Cleveland can always go on a run. Um, but I mean, it, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think it was the biggest of series, you know, five-game, five seven-game lead. Um, still both comfortable positions, but um, certainly, I mean, for all intents and purposes, if you have a seven-game lead with 28 to go, I mean, that's hard to to go away. Um, Cleveland will get another chance. Twins have another chance to put the division away next week when they play for three games in Cleveland. 
um, you know, twins take two or three there. They're kind of back in the same spot. So um, I'd say pressure still on Cleveland. Uh, but it was one of those when you're one strike away, one wild pitch, that, that's a tough way to lose, especially when it turns into a two game swing. Now, Duran has been their, you know, obviously their highest leverage reliever. Um, he's maybe pitched into a little bit of tough luck at times here, but I, just, I went back and looked the last two months. His ERA is like 4.6. OPS against is like over 800. He's got a few blown saves, some losses. Like he just hasn't been as dominant, not nearly as dominant as he was in the first few months of the year. Now, this is, and this is over a two-month stretch. What 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 should be the Twins' level of concern with maybe how he hasn't been that same dominant guy, at least outcome-wise, in the last couple of months? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those, it's his first full year as a closer, second season in the big leagues. I mean, some of this, I think, is a, to be expected. You can't be, I mean, kind of the expectation going in for the first few months of the season was you put Duran in, he's going to get the save, he's going to strike out two or three guys, he's not going to give up any hits. Um, I mean, you look at the blown save against Cleveland on Wednesday, um, you know, one of them was just a, a comebacker back to the mound, could have turned into an inning-inning double play, he bobbled it, only got one out. Uh, and then the game time run scores on a wild pitch. I mean, it, to me, it wasn't like he, he got hit around. He's giving up a ton of homers. Um, so, I, I, like, my concern level, I, I don't think, and the Twins, too, I, I don't think it's super high. I think it's just one of those, there are growing pains when you're trusting a, a second-year pitcher as your closer, um, and you get into September, and he's throwing more innings than he probably has um, in his entire career as a reliever. So, it, it's just one of those. I, I think these happen uh, with young guys, and there, there, there would have to be a little bit more for. Um, I know the blown saves are concerning when you're trying to put away Cleveland, but I, I don't, I don't see it as the uh, the worst case scenario where he's getting hit around and his velocity's dropping and he doesn't look like the same guy. I, I think it's just a little things here and there. Speaking of more innings than he's ever thrown, Bailey Ober reached, I think, like 140 innings or so between the Twins and the Saints because he started the year in AAA. They they sent him down a few days ago. They they do you know, option him and bring up uh, Cody Funderburg, who had a really good debut, and he gives up the, the home run the other day. But it, more the bigger part, the bigger piece of that was was Ober. How, how I mean, he seemed like caught him off guard maybe a little bit, and just he's been such a rotation mainstay for four months that it caught me off guard as well. What do you think? What's the what's the big picture plan for him? Do you, is he going to be? in St. Paul for a while. Do you think he comes up relatively soon once you can add a, a couple of roster spots here on September 1? What what do you think they they think is kind of the, the path forward for him? Yeah, he'll be down for a little bit. He has to be down. If you send someone to the minor as a pitcher, they have to be down for 15 days. So he'll be down at least a couple of weeks. Um, I'm curious to see what kind of their plan is for a postseason role. I assume it's the bullpen. Um, just for a guy who's throwing as many innings and Maybe he turns into a fourth starter if you advance past that first round where it's a best of three series. Um, but I think it's just they're trying to find ways to limit his innings. I mean, it's one of those all teams do different things to conserve their starting pitchers. Steven Strasburg uh, a few years ago kind of made that famous when the Nationals were about to make the playoffs and they shut him down completely. Um, and it was pretty controversial. So, I, 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 I mean, they limited his last start to four innings or they, they were going to have Dallas Keuchel piggyback after him for five or four or five innings. So they're already limiting them to pretty much five and done. Um, maybe it was going to turn into four and done. And now I think it's just, okay, let's take a couple of weeks off. Um, and, and then when you come back, you could be a six inning, five, six inning guy again. And, um, you know, maybe you don't have to watch it as closely. So 
part part of it too. I mean, Dallas Keuchel's pitched pretty well. Um, they, they, you have to find room for him somewhere. I, I don't think being a full time reliever was kind of the role they wanted to give him. So um, at, at some point, you kind of had to make a six man rotation work or find something to limit overs inning. So I think this was kind of their their solution for that problem, which is saying, okay, let's let them throw very, as much as little as possible for a couple weeks, um, and, and in the final weeks of the season, he can go back to normal. Keuchel had that kind of really rough outing in Philadelphia, I believe, but every other every other appearance he's made has been either, you know, somewhere between good and, you know, almost perfect. That, that time he went into the seventh with the perfect game. How is he getting guys out? Like I, I don't I still don't understand how his stuff plays right now in, in this era where everybody's trying to lift the ball. Like it just seems like an eighty eight mile per hour left handed fastball should be getting knocked all around, but he's he's done a good job. How has that kind of changed? kind of their thinking and, and and is his good pitching, is that sustainable for another month? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if it's sustainable. I mean, I think that's the big question, but I think the twins are in a spot where why not test it out? And if, if it's not sustainable, I mean, you, you, you don't have to hesitate to make a move back to Ober um, or Louis Barlin or whoever, um, you know, you have options. So I think it's ride this as long as possible, see what happens. But um, you know, this is kind of who he's always been. I mean, he's never been a guy who's thrown 93, 94 miles an hour. It's always been a little harder than it is now, but um, he, he, he gets a lot of soft contact. Guys have trouble barreling him up. Um, now, now, he's had some balls that have died at the warning track and um, probably given up more fly balls than he's used to. He's, he used to be the guy who led the league in grounders every season. Um, and he's, he's probably given up more fly balls than he's wanted over his past few outings, but um, I, I think it's one of those. I mean, he, he's, he's a guy who has World Series experience, uh, veteran pitcher, highly motivated. I mean, he easily could have hung him up if he wanted it to when he struggled last year. So um, I, I think it's one of those that'd be great to have in a, a playoff team, especially another left-hander. Um, you could have him pitch one time through the lineup in the playoffs um, if everything mm-hmm. went well. If it doesn't go well, then you know you have other options. So I think it's one of those ride it out as much as possible, and um, you, you can always make decisions later. Speaking of riding it out as much as possible, um, Buxton, Byron Buxton has been out for about a month now, just started rehab assignment in St. Paul. He played played the outfield on Wednesday. Um, it's, it's just kind of interesting. Like the offense really kind of took off, like found its form a little bit more when he got hurt because suddenly, you know, he wasn't hitting well. Suddenly you're, you know, spreading around the DH role to a lot of guys who are hitting well, like Julian and other guys who can, you know, who don't necessarily have to play the field every day, but you want their bat in the lineup. Um, Michael A. Taylor's been really good in center field and has given you quite a bit of offense. I mean, he's kind of for for August, he kind of hit and played like you would want Buxton to hit and play in center field with a lot of home runs, some good defense. Um, not saying they don't have room for a healthy motivated, productive Byron Buxton on the roster. But I'm curious, like, what do you think they do when and if he is deemed ready to come back? What's, what is his role? What does that look like if that comes to pass in September? Yeah, in my head, I think it's probably two days a week in center field, somewhere around there. And then um, three or four days a week as your designated hitter with an off day in there. Um, I mean, especially when Kirloff comes back, I mean, that really crowds your infield. At some point, especially against right-handed pitching, you're going to have Polanco, Royce Lewis, and Edward Julian. One of those three has to sit if the DH isn't there and first base is not available. Um, so I think that's where By- Byron Buxton playing center field, that's where you can get his bat in the lineup, uh, especially against right-handed pitching. I don't know Michael Taylor's splits, but 
Uh, being a right-handed hitter, I would assume, you know, he, he's better against lefties than against righties. So that's one where Buxton could be a, an offensive upgrade. Um, and, and, and it's just one of those, I, I think Buxton, it, he, he did hit before he got the hamstring strain. If you look at like his last week, I think he had like six doubles in a week. Um, yeah. So, I mean, if he turns into that guy, I mean, that, that's huge for your offense. I mean, I, I know he's had a disappointing offensive season, um, but there's still, there's still a huge amount of upside what he can do for the rest of the offense if he's hitting. Um, and if, if you look at your defense, uh, you look at like a late game playoff scenario, if you had Buxton, Michael Taylor, and Max Kepler as your outfield, um, you know, that's, that's as good of a defensive outfield as you could ask for. So I, I think there's roles there that he could fill, uh, especially against left-handed pitching, uh, where he, he could be the DH and then against right-handed pitching plays more center field. Um, and, and that, that would help the lineup and not kind of penalize any of the other guys that are hitting well right now. Guys that are hitting well right now, there are a few of them more than there were at a lot of other points in the season. One of them, obviously, is Royce Lewis. He had back-to-back grand slams. You can't do much better than that. First first player in Twins history, if I'm not mistaken, right, that, that has done that in back-to-back games. He homered in the, in the third game in a row after that. He's carried them to a certain degree. I mean, there's there's been other guys that are producing, but give me kind of your perspective on his emergence I mean, we we make these like grand statements, and I've even said it like, is this Royce Lewis's team now? Like, I don't know if we if we're ready to say that, but like leadership wise, and just like you know, when a guy helps you rally twice with grand slams, I'm sure that 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 grabs some attention. How do you see, how do you see his kind of evolving role, not just as a, a bat in the lineup, but more than that? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't I don't think it's crazy to say he could become face of the team in the near future. Um, I, I don't know if that'll happen this year. I mean, he's still a rookie, um, but and I, I think that's something that a lot of people take for granted. Is he only has fifty some career games underneath his belt? Um, dealt with so many injuries that he doesn't really have much time at AAA either. I mean, he lost a ton of at bats in the upper minor leagues. Um, doesn't have a ton of MLB experience, so the success he's having is. Um, I know he was the number one pick, but there's not a lot of number one picks who could deal with what he's done dealt with and still have the immediate impact he's having at the major league level. Um, he's provided a huge boost. I mean, he, people see it. I mean, he's relentlessly positive. Um, oh, he's got a smile on his face. You see him when he rounds the bases on his homers, uh, what that does for the dugout. So um, no doubt, I think he's turned himself into an everyday player. I, I think when he first came up this year, there were some days where he, he was sitting a little bit. Um, not, not, not regularly sitting, but days where, okay, you can survive a game without him in the lineup. Now, now he's the guy who you have to have him in there every day. So, I mean, his role has increased. Um, he's made himself more valuable. Um, and he's a guy, I mean, when he comes up to the plate with runners on base right now, I, I think he's one of the more fearsome guys they have in their lineup. So, um, I, I don't think it's – I would say it's his team, but I, I would say that's not far off that it could be in the future. I mean, it's definitely shaping up where um, sky's the limit for him. And you referenced Julian and Walner, too. I mean, both those guys have had – a pretty big impact. I mean, are we, how, are we at the point now where we don't have to see Joey Gallo all that much or where, where are we at with a, kind of the, what's, what's there? I guess maybe that's a, a, a way of saying right now, kind of even with guys rehabbing with, with guys out right now, what's, what's kind of their idealized lineup right now? Yeah. I mean, I, you mentioned Gallo. I, I, I struggle to see kind of where he fits uh, when you get some of these guys back. I mean, you get Alex Kirloff back, that's a left-handed hitting uh, first baseman, you get Willie Castro back. That's a and, and Buxton. You don't have it. Gallo's needs to be the backup center fielder's gone. Uh, Castro's kind of a he's a switch hitter, so he can hit lefty. Um, and, and you saw 
Joey Gallo got pinch hit for by uh, Jordan Luplo yesterday. So um, I, I think that's kind of says a lot about his role is that he's getting pinch hit for by right-handed hitters against right-handed pitching. Um, so, I mean, he, he could be the odd man out when, yeah, yeah, you're going to have expanded rosters um, and, and that'll allow you to add an extra position player, but Kirloff, Buxton, uh, Willie Castro back. I mean, you start looking at the numbers, that's where he's in trouble. Um, I, I, I think the twins are well positioned, especially against right-handed pitching in terms of their depth. Um, Kirloff, I feel like, has kind of become the forgotten man. He was eating really well before he got yeah. hurt. Um, and, and if he can kind of find that form again, shoulder injuries are always tricky, I think. But if he can find that form again, uh, that'll do huge things for the offense. But like Matt Walner, he's got to start against right-handed hitters. Uh, Max Kepler's kind of turned into a guy. I, I don't know if you can sit Kepler now. I mean, he's sitting well against lefties now, too. So um, I think your outfield's pretty set. Your infield's already crowded. Um, so th- there's going to be some guys that are kind of squeezed out of every t- playing time. And I think Joey Gallo is going to be one of them. Um, and-, and then you have the guys like Donovan Solano and Kyle Farmer. They'll probably pick their spots for those guys. But um, I-, 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 th- I think the depth's a good thing when you talk about getting into the playoffs, specific scenarios, late in games. Uh, you want to have guys off the bench you feel comfortable with. And I-, I think that'll be the case as long as everyone stays healthy. Kepler's an interesting one because, you know, he was, everybody was on him. He was hitting below 200. His OPS was like 650. Everybody's like, what? What do you guys see in him? Just let him go. He's not, he's probably not going to be here next year. At least that was the prevailing thinking before because he's got the, you know, the team option and the small buyout. Uh, do we know how, how, do we know, like, was there something that changed in him or did he just kind of, he started finding some success and built on that. Like, what? How did Max Kepler turn into, like you said, a guy that you don't think you can sit him against anybody? Whereas, you know, two months ago, everybody's like, "Get rid of this guy. He's terrible." Yeah, I mean, I think a part of it was he got onto a role and then he just kind of held on to it. Um, was struggling, you know, those first couple months. Came back from the injury, really struggled when he got back from the injury, and then kind of found a rhythm after that. Um, when you ask him, I mean, he's talked about the team a little bit, saying he feels like the team's less individualized guys are cheering more for each other. And he's kind of fed off of that. Um, you know, and he, he swears there's no like big swing change. There hasn't been, um, you know, any sit down with the hitting coach and change his approach or anything like that. Um, and, and if you looked when he was struggling, I mean, he was still hitting the ball hard. It was just at a lot of guys and um, he was probably striking out more then than he is now. But um, yeah, I mean, you just kind of look at the turnaround. I mean, that's the, the perk of having people who believe in you for a 162 game season. Um, yeah, you're struggling for a couple of months, but the whole offense was struggling. And, uh, you know, that probably bought him some time and uh, got the attention off him a little bit. And then um, as you see him now, I mean, when, when he's hitting the way he is, I mean, I think like next year's team option, that's kind of turning into a no brainer, you know, in the other way that you got to keep him if uh, he's playing the defense he is and hitting the way he is. Yeah. 940 OPS since June 20th, 14 homers, batting almost 300, getting on base at a decent clip, walking just enough, strikeouts down. He's probably striking out about once every five plate appearances during that stretch, which is, you know, if this if this was 1980, everybody would be complaining about him striking out once every five times, but this is 2023, and that's actually pretty good, especially on on this team. It's just, it's just a, you know, he hadn't been great since probably 2019, and he's been great for two and a half months. It's just that... That kind of came out of nowhere to me, at least. Yeah, I think a lot of people, I mean, uh, obviously I haven't been around the team for the past couple of years. I remember 2019 when he had the great numbers that he had and kind of didn't realize how how, uh, how much he struggled after that. But 
Um, you take away the shift, you know, I, I think a lot of people pointed to him being a guy that was going to benefit from that. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how many extra hits he's gotten because you don't have the, the roving infielder that's sitting in shallow right field and, uh, kind of dominated against left-handed hitters. So, um, but I, I don't, I don't know how many extra hits he got, but you just kind of see the confidence for him. He's, he's using kind of even more of the field too. You see him going opposite way for some singles. Um, a little bit left of the center fielder. So I, I, I think that's a good sign for his swing just in terms of um, he's feeling good enough that he can go opposite way. When he's pulling the ball, he's getting rewarded for it. So, um, yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's, he's been huge for the Twins. I mean, I feel like there's been a lot of talk about how much the rookies have helped. Uh, Max Kepler's helped a lot, too. A couple more things for you, Bobby. Um, one, I haven't really thought much about or talked much about pace of play pitch clock you know for just for a while now it kind of feels like it's become just kind of part of the norm how, how do you feel do players still talk about it a lot are there still issues or has this become you know kind of smoothed out now that we're kind of five months into it yeah i think this is kind of the new normal um it almost feels weird when you're watching a three three hour game that's almost turned into like the old four hour game where it's like wow this game is really dragging on and um then you look and it's only two hours and 50 minute game so uh, I, I know the players, they, they, they haven't brought it up a ton. Um, I'll be interested to see kind of the first pitch clock violations in the postseason, how pitchers react to that. Um, but a lot of players talk about the benefit of saying, you know, it, I think it's 30 minutes that have been cut from the average game. So you're talking about um, an hour off your feet every two, every two games uh, per a week. You're basically off your feet for an entire game. So you're playing, you know, almost a game less a week, um, you know, just in totality in terms of the pitch clock. So I, I think that's been the biggest benefit for a lot of players. They say they feel a lot fresher um, this deep into the season than they usually would just because they're not in the field as long and games are shorter. Final thing. Let's assume the Twins are going to win the AL Central. Again, that's it's not a, a given right now. It, it, five up with 28 to play. they got to feel good, but there's still work to do. But let's just, let's assume that they, they do do this. Um, do you have like a, a team that they you feel like they match up well with if you have you looked far enough ahead to the playoffs like right now it looks like they would play texas if the playoffs are today but that's still subjective to to change you could be toronto could be any number of of teams if they rise and fall do you do you, do you feel like they match up favorably with any one team and how do you feel they match up just in general in a three game series i mean a three game series i think you have to feel good at least about the twins pitching um you know pablo lopez sunny gray i'm sure those two are your top two starters, yeah. game one, game two, however you want to um, put them. But you have to feel good about how the way they're pitching. Uh, I'll be curious how they design their bullpen. I mean, right now you have basically four relievers, uh, Duran, Jax, Steelbar, and Pagan that are getting the prime, uh, the majority of the high leverage situations. Um, you're probably going to add to that. I mean, Keiko could be a guy. Hampton Maeda could be a guy. Louis Varlin could be a guy. Um, Chris Paddock is trying to work his way back to become one of those guys. So, um, I, I think you're going to have some converted starters that are going to be added to that group. Um, so pitching-wise, I think I think you feel okay. The offense, they, they've shown they're, they've been better in the second half, um, performed when they've been behind, which is, I think, a good, you know, battle-tested thing. As, ter- as far as, like, best matchups, I would think, like, Seattle would be a better matchup than Texas. Texas, one, they have some left-handed pitchers they could go to, which has been, uh, over the course of the season, that's been the Twins' primary weakness offensively. Um, and they have guys like Tony Montgomery. You'd have Max Scherzer where you'd have to face him. Um, Texas's lineup has been really good. Now, Texas has struggled. Their bullpen has been terrible this year, but um, I, don't, I don't know if you'd want to, you know, 
base your playoff hopes on Aroldis Chapman struggling or uh, Will Smith <laughs> right. struggling, guys who won World Series before. So um, I, I think that would be the better matchup. Houston, the, those are a lot of winners. I, I, I feel like it's going to end up being an AL West, whatever team finishes third there. Yeah. Um, other, otherwise, maybe Toronto. Um, either way, I mean, all the games are at Target Field. Yeah. Uh, Twins might be considered the underdog based off their record. Um, but with their pitching, I, you know, I, I'd be surprised if they got swept at home. You know, I, I think that'd be a terribly disappointing season, uh, terribly disappointing way to go out uh, with the team they have built. I think that's true. And I think people are watching that carefully. Of course, you have not been here for any of the 18 consecutive playoff losses, but I'm sure you've heard plenty about it as well. And this organization knows it. They they wear that right now and they are very eager to see that uh, see that eradicated. But they got to get there first. We'll see if they can do it. Uh, Bobby Nightingale, appreciate the time as always. We'll, uh, we'll catch you soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really impressed with Bobby's command of this beat already. Just joined us a few months ago coming from Cincinnati. But uh, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that conversation with him and just this this Cleveland uh, fascinating stuff from Cleveland lately where they added three Angels pitchers that were placed on waivers. Angels, I don't know what the Angels are doing, but they, they tried to go for it at the deadline, didn't work out. Some of the guys they got, um, Lucas Giolito and Reynaldo Lopez from the White Sox, they traded prospects for these guys. They just dumped them on waivers to try to dump some salary. The Guardians got Giolito, Reynaldo Lopez, and Matt Moore, three pitchers um, to add to their September uh, pitching staff that's gives them a boost I, I still you know <clears throat> twins are still up five with 28 to go but talk to me next week when the when these two series the one against texas and the one against cleveland are done these are two road series the twins caught texas at a good time the other week when they were still struggling got them three out of four just gave away that game wednesday to the guardians they let the guardians kind of back into the race um, let's talk a week from now and see where they are because I'm still a little bit nervous about this stretch and seeing where they're going to wind up, especially now that Cleveland has added three uh, major league caliber arms that, that could help them down the stretch here. Speaking of down the stretch, let's finish with the cooler. TJ Hawkinson <clears throat> signs a four-year extension with the Vikings, could make him the highest paid player Sorry, the highest paid tight end, not the highest paid player. That would be something else if that was a tight end. The highest paid tight end in the NFL with an average value contract of a little more than $17 million. Hopefully that clears up any lingering issues he's been having. We were kind of uh, wink, wink, nod, nod, looking at his ear infection, his back injury, wondering if that was contract related. The contract is settled now. Hopefully they will have him a full go <clears throat> when the season starts a little over a week from now because he is going to be a big part of the offense. And when you look at what they can do with Justin Jefferson, TJ Hawkinson, Jordan Addison, and KJ Osborne, that is a lot in the receiving game for Kirk Cousins to work with. Could put up a big season, could be in line for a contract next year, whether that's here or somewhere else. So a big piece of the puzzle for the Vikings. The biggest one obviously remains a Justin Jefferson extension. Imagining that's still just a question of when, but uh, until it's done, I think Vikings fans will be like, well, when's it going to get done? Let's get this thing done. Uh, but they at least got the Hawkinson one done before the season started. That will do it for me today. 
Um, good stuff coming up next week. And if you're out at the fair, come find me on Saturday. I think at three o'clock, I'll be there with, um, uh, with folks from the Minnesota Lynx. And then, uh, Monday morning, I should be out there around 11 o'clock or so with Don Plitzawhite, head coach of the Gophers women's basketball team. So look for me out there. And uh, until then, enjoy the rest of your long weekend. No show on Monday, but I'll be back at it again Tuesday with Roycey. Talk to you then. <laughs>